Hi, this is Conrad Walton at walkercommunity.com, and today I'm going to interview Roger Nussbaum from Walker Fire. So explain to me about Walker Fire. This, this whole idea of talking to you is the day I saw you up at the Rock at the beginning of the Goodwin Fire, and I said, man, I wouldn't want to have your job, and you said, it's not a job. And I thought, I kind of knew that, but it blew my mind that you're this guy with all this responsibility that I'm trusting with my life, essentially, and you don't get paid. So explain how the fire department works and who does what and what the structure sure. is and all that. So uh, just as he said, it is all volunteer. Uh, the department itself is just about 50 years old, always been all volunteer. Uh, we've evolved you know, out of necessity as the world has evolved into being a pretty substantial department relative to the local area. We have, um, you know, depending, but it's in the high 20s in terms of number of volunteers, uh, which is a lot for an all-volunteer department for Arizona. We have nine uh, v different vehicles, which is a lot, you know, for kind of single house uh, departments, single house meaning, you know, just one fire station. Mm -hmm. um, so we're kind of a, a big little department. Um, our call volume is very small just because we have a small population. There's uh, what we think is 150 full-timers up here, and in the summer I think we think that about doubles. Uh, potato Patch uh, is a small, you know, in the winter I think there's like a single-digit number of, of people that live up here. Only the um, like how, how far do you go? What's your responsibility? Well, we'll go wherever we're dispatched as long as we can get there safely. So in the, that could change in the summer versus, uh, you know, the winter versus summer. Uh, but we go to Potato Patch all the time. That's certainly our, with it, well within our area. Mm -hmm. Going past there, um, we go to Mountain Pine Acres occasionally. Dude. Groom Creek gets dispatched there occasionally. So maybe that's kind of a, a no man's land. I, I'm not sure what drives mm -hmm. that decision. We've gone out Walker Road toward Prescott quite a ways. Certainly mile marker four quite a few times. We've been dispatched further than that. To Lynx Lake? Uh, uh, to Lynx Lake. Um, for a, Once there was a dumpster fire, there was a, a medical thing. We had to carry someone up from the lake once, uh, one time. Um, so that's certainly, uh, you know, we get less of that. That really is more Prescott's thing, but it can mm -hmm. go that far in that direction. Uh, to be sure, up Spruce Mountain, we fought fires on Spruce Mountain before. Um, so it's kind of varied if we can get there safely you know we're, we're going to go um okay so how's it structured why why are you the chief and why don't you get paid um well it's you know literally all volunteer um that's the the model to you know just like with any business mm -hmm. uh paying people is you know two-thirds of the expense if not more whatever their salary is you have to figure it out and there's some formula like 30 or 40 percent more in right. terms of benefits uh, insurances, all of that stuff, mm -hmm. FICA, all of that stuff that you have to add on, and there just isn't the revenue here to pay someone. And I don't think there's the call volume, but that's a mm -hmm. you know a subjective opinion. Someone else might draw a different conclusion, mm -hmm. uh, but the revenue doesn't really support it. Um, you know, there's plenty of departments that are uh, nationally. I don't know about Arizona. Nationally, that are you know 100% volunteer. Um, I kind of view this as one of those things where the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. And so, speaking selfishly, and having the chance to be the chief, it's an opportunity to meet all sorts of people you'd never otherwise meet, do things you would never otherwise get the chance to do, 
whoever was going to be the chief here, and just happens to be me now, has the opportunity to sit at the table for some very important, you know, discussions. Prescott is a, among other things, a kind of a, a one of several like epicenters for wildland firefighting, and um, being able to participate in that uh, is an amazing, you know, the elite of the elite. Uh, and here I am, just some guy working a day job who wants to help his community. Uh, that the more you put in, the more you get out, and mm -hmm. that I think is exactly it. Um, is that why everybody else volunteers? Well, I think everyone has their own motivation, and it's all good as far as I'm concerned. We've got some younger guys who come through, and they want a, something on their resume to the, go then become professional firefighter in, in the Forest Service. And we've got. You know, quite a few, I would say probably six or seven Walker alums or current roster members working for the Forest Service. And invariably, you know, whoever is the hiring decision maker will call me and say, well, what can you tell me about so-and-so? Mm -hmm. And they really, their actions and their effort determines what I can say to the hiring manager. Mm -hmm. Not much to say. Or this guy did this, that, and the other. Let me tell you about it. And I can go on for 10 minutes. Um, they drive that and, you know, I think that message has sunken in with those folks because a lot of them get hired. Mm -hmm. um, we have people who live here uh, as full-timers, uh, maybe retired, maybe not, um, are just interested in doing something different. I mean, from my professional background, this is, and where I grew up, 180 degrees different than anything I've ever done. So that's one of the things that interests me. I think that might uh, you know, describe a few other people as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a motivating factor. Another. Uh, slice of the department are people who are retired professional firefighters mm -hmm. who want to keep their qualifications active mm -hmm. and by affiliating with us they can do that which leads to being able to do work in the summer on larger incidents. Hmm. Okay. All right. Which, how did you get into this? How did you start? Um, so a longtime Walker resident and, and great firefighter Phil Zink uh, recruited me in. We came here in 1998 uh, moved here full-time in 2002 and Phil said hey you got to come check out the fire department did loved it and have loved it ever since okay um, how how is it structured uh, what are the requirements for volunteers uh, obviously we don't want to make it difficult for anyone to come volunteer there's a you know in terms of being a firefighter mm -hmm. um, there's uh, it's pretty basic there's a annual physical requirement of being able to do what's called the pack test, which is a three-mile hike, 45 pounds, uh, in 45 minutes or less. Which is why I'm not a volunteer <laughs> firefighter. So, it, you know, the great motivation, though, to, to stay in shape, um, you know, with that. So that's kind of a physical element. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of trainings, they need to come regularly to trainings. We have 24 trainings, and it's not like they need to come to, you know, 20 of them. So that's like but every other week? Twice a month, yeah. Twice a month? Yeah, okay. it's twice a month. First and third Saturday of the month is our training. Um, so they need to be semi-regular at least to that. There are certain trainings that are, are you know, mandatory or need to be made up. So they need to uh, be current on their pack test, which is an annual requirement. Mm -hmm. They need to be current on their CPR card, which is every two years. Mm -hmm. um, every year they need to do an annual, it's called Wildland Fire Refresher, which is just classroom for, you know, a few hours. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, that's... They need to be current on that. Just coming to three or four trainings a year isn't really sufficient. Mm -hmm. But in terms of just the minimums, um, 
And then... Do they have to live here full-time? No, no. We have plenty of people who are part-timers mm-hmm. um, who live in Phoenix, uh, but will come. You know, if we have a wildland fire, it's a good six, seven-hour engagement if it's a legitimate fire. Right. So driving the two hours, they still get plenty of fire time. The, the last big fire we had was in 2013. It was the Green Gate Fire, and that started at like 1230 at night. Where was that? Uh, a Big Bug Is Road. Is that the Green Gate on Big Bug? Yeah. By the concrete driveway? Yep. Okay. Well, that started at 1230 at night and lasted till 4 in the afternoon. So, you know, getting here, and guys got here 3 or 4 in the morning, ready to fight a fire, and they jumped on the line. And then you, structure fire, if they want to get into fighting structure fires, where there's training that we can get for them mm-hmm. um, that would bring them in line with the group. And do you need volunteers, or are you pretty well full up? Uh, there's no such thing as full up. Um, we can always use volunteers. You know, it's people come and go in terms of vacation, work schedules, this and that. So a fire happens Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock in the middle of May, which is prime time for a fire to start. You know, we can always use more people right then. So, yeah, people who are interested, yes, it's, we can always use more. Okay. Is the Walker Fire Department a separate organization from WFPA? And then what does the fire department actually own? Because you have equipment, you have buildings. How does that work? So the context of your question, they really uh, are are the same thing. They're interchangeable. The WFPA, Walker Fire Protection Association, is the name of the department, and we have a board that oversees certain aspects of the running of the organization. So it's it's one organization? Yes. Okay. It's not, um, the board doesn't, uh, chooses not to be involved with, uh, you know, operational decisions. But in terms of budgeting, in terms of procurement, fundraising, fundraising procurement of, of certain equipment, you know, like when we need large capital expenditures like vehicles, right. um, we built a substation up on Big Bug Mesa Road near Heron Hollow, mm-hmm. um, and that started out as a, uh, you know, a procurement decision, um, and then the folks up on Big Bug, uh, led by Mark Heron, they built the the, uh, the substation, and I don't know that. The department, the WFPA, was out of pocket anything for that. Um, you know, the benefit to them obviously is they now have a, uh, a fire truck up there. Right. So it is, you know, the same organization. There are certain things where they oversee, like the manner in which we are insured. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all sorts of administrative stuff that is, you know, the. Yeah, the I was going to say, what does the budget pay for? How big is the budget? The budget. Uh, is in the neighborhood of 100,000. I don't know the exact figure off the top. A big chunk of it is insurance. You know, the world is getting more complicated as is our insurance coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big chunk of it is what we set aside for maintenance for the fleet. Uh, we allocate something like $20,000 out of the 100 uh, mm-hmm. for maintenance. The, the fleet, the average age is pretty old. Our engine is 31 years old uh, for structure fires. Works great, no complaints. But, you know, something that is that old uh, occasionally is going to have uh, needs. We have quite a few things that are, you know, 25, 26, 27 years old. Uh, we have some newer stuff that hopefully is less expensive to maintain, but it's a mix, and so that's a, uh, a big part of it. A uh, smaller part is during the fire season, we man the station on the weekends uh, to have a faster response. Um, that's one little, you know, but small but noticeable slice of the budget. Medical equipment, like most departments, most of our calls are medical in nature. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, that, that's That's true with all departments now. It's like 80, 85%, if not more, are medical calls. Do you have EMTs or medical training? 
So we have, yes, as the short answer, we've got five paramedics in the department. We have just a couple of EMTs because several of them went on to become paramedics. You know, when we have a, a call, you know, we use equipment and that needs to be replaced. What, what kind of medical? I have, I have no concept that you guys did medical stuff at all. So it breaks down into two types of calls, you know, medical, which is like a, a heart issue or a blood sugar issue or a stroke issue, that sort of, you know, medical thing that might be an ongoing com uh, condition where someone has something unfortunate with that ongoing condition. The other thing is something like a trauma. Um, they fall down a hill. They have a, uh, an ATV accident, you know, something like that, even a bee sting. So then what kind of fire stuff do you deal with? couple of wildland incidents, hopefully they're small. Um, we had one in November, it was probably the size of three or four bathtubs of a fire, but it was a, you know, a fire and so, you know, we went and put it out. Something small like that or it's what's common is after the fire season ends, we'll have a tree catch fire from a lightning strike. Mm. Uh, and so that's, in that scenario, it's not in danger of blowing up into something that is scary, but it's something that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we'll do that. Our fire season, which has started in years past as early as March, but I think May is a more normal start time through whenever the rain comes around July 4th. Mm -hmm. uh, that's our regular fire season, and that's when stuff mm -hmm. is in danger of becoming very serious very quickly. Like when the Goodwin fire yeah, happened. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that is the Goodwin fire, basically. Yeah. happened you know, very quickly, very hot, very dry, which is not news to anybody. Do you have a, a seasonal uh, number of calls? Because we have so few, it's pretty lumpy. And where it is mostly medical, we have two or three calls a month in a, in a typical run. This past month, we had four which, you know, without question is a lot. One of them was related to whether it was a down power line. And the other were, you know, not fires. They were one way or another medical related. So it, it but it can be lumpy because there are so few. It, it's tough to predict such a small sample size. It doesn't calm down during the winter? Or then you get more medical issues? Yeah, I would say it, it hasn't calmed down. I mean, we've had years where we've had a lot more going on in the summer, but the last three or four years, it just hasn't been the case for whatever reason. How does the fundraising work? How's that? So our revenue model is, you know, the primary source is donations. So when we, you know, solicit via a couple of newsletters a year, you know, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, we're asking for money. Everything that we have, everything that we do, everything that we get to do uh, is a function of the community's generosity. There's no requirement, you know, you're not paying for a subscription. Whether you contribute or not, you know, we still come to your house and, you know, address whatever the call is. Um, the, there's a, you know, a wall between the accounting of donations and what the fire department knows. So we don't know when someone doesn't pay or versus when they do pay. So it doesn't benefit me to pay and put the little sign in my window? Well, the <laughs> sign in the window has contact information. Yeah. And actually, we did have a call where someone had a downed power line around their house. It was a threat to their house during the fire season. Mm -hmm. And they put their placard in the window, and it was very easy. Oh, there's their number. Just make the call, and, yeah. and they know right away. Okay. Uh, so it does benefit them, but in terms of, you know, and we wouldn't know until we showed up that you had the card in your window anyway. Yeah. Um, but, but you'll be there no matter what. No matter what. I figure the newsletter, you, you write one check a year, two checks a year, and two newsletters. Um, does most of the money come from that yes. or from things like Walker Day and the, all the other? The, the vast majority comes from the soliciting donations and the two newsletters. Okay. Walker Day is a huge portion of our income. I think it was something like 
11 or 12,000 this year, and if I've got that wrong, you, mm -hmm. you know, you can correct it, but it, which is a huge chunk of our money, not as big as the donations, but that's a huge chunk. The pancake breakfast, so there's, you know, depending on the calendar, there's, you know, anywhere between three and six of those a year, and, you know, that's nice. I think we bring in something like, you know, 800 to $1,200 average on those, so that's nice. That adds up mm -hmm. uh, to some money. We are just now starting to participate in large incidents out of the area, and that can generate revenue. We don't quite know what that looks like yet. How does that work? Well, in terms of the budget, it's neutral for the budget. We send, uh, the only vehicle that will be going out would be the, the rescue, and I guess I would say if anyone's concerned, we have duplicate medical equipment uh, on the fire apparatus, so if the mm -hmm. ambulance isn't here for any reason, uh, we have the personnel and uh, and equipment uh, on other vehicles to bring, so it's we don't transport with the ambulance. So when you send somebody out to another fire somewhere else, the state pays you back basically for that. Yeah, so we bill for the time for the ambulance and for the people, mm. uh, and so the people get paid, and the ambulance is revenue that accrues to the department. Mm. So people who volunteer here could actually get paid working somewhere else. There is absolutely a path to, again, the more you put in, the more you're going to get out of it. Right. And there's absolutely a path toward, if you want to become an EMT, the, the mm -hmm. uh, opportunity is, is really limitless. And, and the, the pay is hundreds of dollars a day to be an EMT on an incident. It's hard work. You are, you know, you are earning it. But uh, in terms of you know, how much do you make in a year, if you go out for 10 days and you make five or $600 a day all in, uh, is that worth it relative to what you make? For a lot of folks, absolutely it is. You know, mm -hmm. if you're making a million dollars, maybe not, but yeah. uh, it absolutely becomes significant. Someone making fifty, sixty, seventy thousand, five thousand bucks on one fire becomes relevant. There are other avenues as well. We have people who are in the process of becoming. It's called medical unit leaders. That typically requires a, a medical background. It's more, you know, like EMT paramedic. Uh, it's more office than being out in the field, but again, on one incident, you can be making six, $7,000 if you're out there for 10, 12, 14 days. But again, you got to put the time in. It's a job yeah. that you get hired for, so all of that stuff, it's hard work that you earn, uh, to be sure. Their experience doing that benefits us. Without question. And it doesn't cost us a thing. Right. So that's a win-win, it sounds yep. like. Yeah, that's a great way to phrase it. Okay. And if we didn't have the volunteer donation business model, what's a fire district? How would that work? You know, why don't we have one of those? So the mechanics of a district are, are pretty straightforward. It's an extra assessment on your property tax that goes specifically toward funding the fire department. There have been, I'm aware of, three attempts in the modern era to try to create one. The first one Pretty sure it was 2006. I was on the board at the time. It was a very comprehensive effort. It came nowhere close to passing, but uh, it was a great learning experience for the community in terms of understanding, because if there had been one previously, it would have been decades prior. And so this was a great opportunity to understand some of the dynamics involved. The vote burden is very high. It's, uh, you have to clear 50% of three different things. I may get this wrong, but it's 50% of the registered voters 50% of the number of properties, and 50% of the assessed value to move I, forward and to yeah. actually you know, start then the clock on becoming a district. Okay. So there was a lot of community meetings, mm -hmm. uh, a lot, uh, I imagine there was an email campaign, but it's long enough now I don't recall, but there were a lot of community meetings and you know, really a lot of effort in 2006. We had a consultant helping with it, 
And so really, plenty of effort, no shortage of effort. Mm -hmm. I think the vote was in the mid-20s. Anyone who was around back then can, you know, right, knows right. a better number. Uh, but it came nowhere close to passing. And then subsequent efforts fared no better. Why would somebody want to have a district, or why would they not want to have it? What are the pros and cons? Well, the pros of a district are everyone pays their fair share, which, you know, not everyone contributes now. Mm -hmm. um, there's a misperception about a pro in that we would have staffing here, you know, professional staffing. Uh, well, that's subject to how the district is formed, mm -hmm. the assessment that is created, and the budget that that assessment produces. Because the way it's set up right now, you could choose to do that if you wanted, right? If we had enough donations, you could pay people to staff. Uh, yeah, I suppose we could. Potentially. Yeah. yeah, I suppose we could. But I mean, if you think about... But then it becomes a matter of cost. Yes. Okay. If you have $40,000, is not competitive for someone who's a paramedic, but using that as a as kind of a benchmark, if you figure the all-in cost of someone making 40000 is maybe, I don't know, would that be 52000 Call it fifty. Okay. Yeah. And then how many people are you going to have that are paramedics, let's say three, because you have three shifts, then you have three other firefighters. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you've got to start to wonder, can the number of properties here yeah, actually sustain... went to like 400000 yes. I think. Yes, and can the number of properties, plus our $100,000 budget right. that exists now for just keeping the lights on and the trucks running, right. uh, can the community create that kind of revenue? Right. Uh, so from there, there are workarounds, but that becomes even trickier well, in terms and, of... And instead of the word revenue, let's use the word taxes. Yes, taxes. So uh, that's a con. It's very appealing, and I don't have no pushback on that whatsoever. It's very appealing from a libertarian sense to, I choose to make a donation to my local department to pay for service, as opposed to the government making me to, mm -hmm. you know, making me pay a tax. So mm -hmm. I, I, that resonates with me. I can't push back on that. Um, but that is also part of, you know, that's not an, a, uh, a small, you know, unheard of position up here. So, but I guess I would say a pro, if we did, forgetting all the obstacles, if we had funded people here mm -hmm. around the clock, you know, a pro obviously would be the response to your emergency would not involve someone coming from home mm -hmm. to the station. They would already be here. Somebody calls 911, oh my gosh, what's the process there that gets you at the scene? So most of the locals, firefighters, have uh, radios. So the radios set off what's called a tone. Uh, it's a very loud, jarring noise. That annoying... It's, it's yeah. more than annoying. It's, it's jarring. Okay. Um, and so firefighters either have a scanner that gets that frequency or they leave the radio on. Uh, additionally, everyone has uh, an app on their phone. Uh, or if you know, we have a couple guys who don't have smartphones, they can be texted to them. Um, that notifies them that we have a call, uh, and so if you're here, you hear the radio, you, you know what the call is, and you come to the station. Uh, so that's the, the procedure, is we acknowledge the call from home, people respond, and then based on who is in town and responds, we then determine who goes in what vehicle to get there, and if it's uh, something that's a wildfire, the app will tell the people in Phoenix, you know, it's a wildfire, you know, and they know to come, or you know, it's a sprained ankle, and no one's going to drive two hours to get here after a sprained ankle has been resolved. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, and technology all makes that happen. Mm -hmm. um, we, we're dispatched by the Prescott Regional Communication Center, which is who dispatches Prescott Fire, 
CAFMA, the other big departments. When Three I, or four chiefs ago, Bud Miller you know, got us involved with that dispatch center, which was a huge step forward for us. So when I call 911, it goes to where? It goes to the sheriff dispatch, and then it goes to the Prescott Regional Communication Center, which is who actually dispatches us. And they actually make the call and, they, and do yep, the tone. Yep. Okay. And what kind of response time do you have? Generally. Per our most recent ISO audit, I mean, this is acceptable, our average response for structure fire is 14 minutes. The meeting with Jack Smith and Sarah Tomsky and then Bucky. Yes. Bucky's story was really informative. Yes. The main thing I took away from that meeting was that the stand at Breezy Pines, if that hadn't worked, then we would have been in danger. Mm -hmm. And that kind of scared me a little bit. So what's, what's your impression of what happened? what the, the risks were, what potentially could have happened. Point of understanding of why we were evacuated is when a, a, there's a large incident, the managers of the fire create what's called trigger points. If the fire gets to this point, then this is our action. In terms of creating a little bit of context, it seems if you go look, if you drive up to the, to the tall rock that we posted from on Facebook every day, you'll see it looks like the fire is pretty far. Why did we evacuate? On Tuesday the 27th, in that afternoon, just that afternoon, the fire ran seven or eight miles. If the fire had done that here, there's no getting out. So that's why a decision was, you know, there was a trigger point in place and why the trigger point seemingly is so far away because it doesn't look like anything is burned any, anywhere close. Well, just as a point of reference, yeah. it's seven or eight miles from here to Costco. Right. That's just, oh my gosh. Right. So in one day? One afternoon. One afternoon, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a term that fire you know, can rip, and that's what it did. And so if it had done that, there were a couple of ways where the fire could have moved. One kind of being simple, if you, and again, it helps if you look at our Facebook page. Um, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, the view that we were from the spot we were posting, if you look to the left, down at the bottom of that ravine, if the fire had come around the corner, it would have ripped up there and taken out Big Bug. If it had gone the other direction and gone around Mount Union, then it would have ripped up here through Potato Patch. You know, we were very lucky that that didn't happen. Hopefully everyone understands that an awful lot of things had to go right on Friday, June 30th in terms of mostly weather for the fire not to get here, and it did. The fire blew from the northwest that day, which is exactly, you know, it's better than had it blown from the west, better than had it blown from the southwest. Uh, incredibly lucky and, uh, you know, better lucky than good as far as, Many things in life, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So if the wind had been a different direction, or if it had come from the east, what do you think probably would have happened? Well, I, I don't know. There was a pinch point that was, you know, the danger area. If it had pushed through that pinch point, then that's where the problem would have been. And that was at the end of Big Bug Mesa? That down was down the... toward Breezy Pine, right. uh, where you come in on Poland. Right. Uh, and if it had pushed through that pinch point, which Friday morning was a variable. And so I don't know what it would have happened. That, you know, there's no way right. to know because, you know, in theory, the next day it could have rained. Who, who, who the heck knows? But that was the dangerous spot. You know, it was, I left the, the operational briefing just sick to my stomach that day. A few hours later, you know, things had clearly gone our way. It was obviously where the wind was coming from, and we were up there. It was probably 3 or 4 in the afternoon, and things had not blown up. And so that was a huge sense of relief, and then from there it, it began to wind down quickly. She mentioned putting hot shots in there, and that that was sort of a questionable call, but they thought they could do it safely. Tough for me to say anything about it. I wasn't there. I didn't see 
the actual spot where they were, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I'd be speculating, which doesn't do anybody any good. And what was the role of Walker Fire in the whole Goodwin Fire process? Basically, it was, uh, and this is very common, I mean, we had uh, people, that, to what we were talking about earlier, we had people participating in the incident. Uh, Rescue 81 was there, uh, and we had... Rescue 81 is the... Our ambulance. Okay. And we had, we had five guys involved with the fire in different capacity. You know, we had eight vehicles here. Mm -hmm. We had 19 guys here. Uh, and so what we did basically is we had half of our fleet staged at Costco in case it ripped here, we'd be able to get out. Mm -hmm. um, so we had half of our fleet. We had 19 guys here. We did uh, structure protection uh, assigned from the fire was a structure protection task force made up of several different engines, uh, three hotshot crews, and they were here and they drove and mitigated most if not all of the houses here. Uh, and we worked in conjunction with them also doing structure protection. We mitigated about 50 houses here. I think maybe their count might include our 50, but I'm not sure about that. And so we were, you know, kind of holding down the fort, you know, not making a last stand because if the fire had gotten here, we would have you know, we were positioned in terms of having a plan to go. Again, why we had four vehicles here, uh, we would have loaded up the four vehicles and gotten the, we had like four, you know, four or five personal vehicles so that, you know, the idea was if the town was going to burn down, we weren't going to let our fleet burn down inside the firehouse. And fortunately, obviously it didn't come to that. But we had probably two and a half days of structure protection work, a couple of other days of really just being at the station while the evacuation was occurring. Mm -hmm. We had four guys stay behind the evacuation, sleeping here in case we needed to get the fleet out or in case there was some sort of emergency that was not a suicide mission. Again, didn't come to that, thank goodness. It was an epic chapter in the history of our department. and. Circling back, I think this is the fourth time I've said this now, the more you put in, the more you get out. It was an amazing thing to be a part of, even if it was stressful at times and, you know, really a holy cow, my house could burn down type of moment, especially Tuesday when the evacuation order came in. We went from, you know, zero to 60 in, in no seconds, basically, on that. Did anybody ignore the evacuation order and stay? There were people, I, I, not like I have a count, yeah. uh, but there clearly were people who stayed behind. And did that cause any problems? No, it could have. Could have? Uh, yeah, if, uh, you know, there will be an attempt, a reasonable attempt made, if a fire gets here and someone's in trouble and they call 911, a reasonable attempt is made that risks other people, you know, the people that need to unnecessarily at that point, unnecessarily from the standpoint of you had an evacuation notice, mm -hmm. uh, go in to save. If someone is here and they have a medical issue, that potentially pulls people away from some other task being done to help protect someone's home. You know, what if we didn't get to literally one final home? I mean, it's an absurd example, but it illustrates mm -hmm. the point. If there was one final home we didn't get to and somehow an ember landed in that front yard and that one house is the one that burned down and while there'd be no way to connect the dots, right. it, it, it paints a, a picture. And after the whole Goodwin Fire experience, I had an incredible amount of appreciation and I didn't quite know where to focus that. What's the best way for people to show appreciation. I, I want to say, oh, well, donate to the Walker Fire WFPA. Is that appropriate? Is that the best way? There's several ways. I don't know that one is the best. We need money for sure. We also need time. We have our station boss uh, who did way more than being a station boss for people who know him. His name is Dan Houck. You know, he did what seems like 50 or 60 different things for the department. Mm 
It's a huge void to fill. We're in the process of now, you know, fully understanding all the things that he did. It was a massive list. We're get, starting to get people to fill that role. There's no expectation that someone is going to do that much stuff. That's not a reasonable expectation. We're starting to reach out to people. If that's something, depending on how you hear this, email me at fire-chief at walkerfire.org. If you're interested in things like, you know, we need help with the trucks in terms of their maintenance, in terms of if you have a commercial driver's license. Yeah, there's certain maintenance we can do, certain maintenance for insurance reasons we can't do. It's got to be done by a, a certified fire mechanic. So there's things related to that. Other maintaining of equipment, things like inventory on trucks is spreadsheet work. That's a great way. So I can volunteer without carrying a pack. Absolutely. We don't want anyone to burn themselves out. If there's one narrow task, chances are you're talking about two or three hours a month uh, on something that you know would be very helpful because you're taking a little bit off the plate who spends two or three hours on this plus maybe ten other things. Uh, and so that's a huge relief for someone. I can't think of anything else. Okay. Well, thanks for the interest. Thanks for coming down and spending the time with us. All right. Thanks. You're welcome.